Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another Geek Network special interview brought to you by the Geek Network. And um, in addition to all of our fabulous shows, of course, we do try to bring these interviews to you on a semi-regular basis. And as always, I'm your host, Keith. Um, today, we are joined by another comic book creator, and we are very, very glad to have him because... Uh, He's working on a lot of really exciting stuff, and I can't wait to talk about it. Uh, joining us is Mr. Jim Zub. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, we're again, we're excited. Um, like anyone who listens to the show on a regular basis knows I'm a Marvel freak, so <laughs> <laughs> I just love this Marvel. So we're going to get into that in just a bit. But awesome. as always, <laughs> what were you going to say? Sorry. No, it's awesome. I, you know, I grew up on the Marvel stuff, too, so mm-hmm. getting to work on it is uh, an absolute thrill for me. Oh, I bet, man. <laughs> so, uh, but as always, we start off with our uh, getting to know you questions uh, revolving around the shows that we uh, host every week. So in the tradition of our show uh, binge watching, I want to know what have you been watching? Um, so obviously with everything going on right now, we have a little more time to watch things than normal. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So my uh, wife and I, she has always raved about Deadwood. Um, the Western show that ran for three seasons in a movie. Yes. Uh, I've never watched it before, and I don't know why I put it off so long, because the show's great. So we're currently uh, digging our way through the first season of Deadwood, and she's getting to rewatch it and viscerally enjoying as I uh, am getting into it episode by episode. So it's been really good. Nice. Yeah, I really like that show. The lead, Timothy Oliphant, mm-hmm. is so great. I love him so much in everything. So. Yeah, everyone's yeah. good. It's one of those shows where it's an ensemble, but everyone's strong. Like, the mm-hmm. acting's all really good. The writing's really good. And both my wife and I are writers, and so when we watch stuff, we tend to get really obsessive, compulsive about, you know, taking it apart, like what's working and why. And yes. when something's terrible, <laughs> we just, you know, cut into it like surgery and we're going to cut the cancer out and figure out why it's not working. But when it's great, we just can't stop discussing why it's great and deconstructing why it's great. And we've been uh-huh. just, uh, so it's like, we'll watch an episode or two and then we'll spend another hour just, you know, <laughs> unleashing this like analysis back and forth and discussing plot points. And what's particularly funny is I'm, you know, sort of making guesses where I think things are going to go and she's just got a poker face because she doesn't want me to know where things are headed. So it's great. <laughs> you literally described why my friends don't watch TV with me anymore. <laughs> See, this is our little thing. See, when we go to the movies, there's a group of our friends that love it and another group yeah. of our friends that are like, just loathe. We walk out of the theater and if they enjoy a movie, they'll be like, all right, Jim, tell us why it sucks. And I'm just like, no, I don't hate everything. I promise. That's that's so me. I hate that. I hate how much that's me. We would love to hear you dissect birds of prey. Oh no, we're not going to get into that. uh, The thing is, is that with the, with the superhero movies, I've got the two sort of halves of my brain, right? Like I'm watching it on its own merits as just like a, a movie. Yeah, And then there's the comic book fan side of me that is like, canon is king. And so they're like fighting constantly in my brain where I'm like, was that good? Or was that, am I, do I like this? Or am I just constantly comparing it to the comic? And even with movies that are really good, I can be like, that was cool, but 
but they changed the thing. And I'm like, stop it, stop it. (laughs) You know, so I've got to try and, you know, kind of pull myself over to the side of the road and just be like, enough. It was fine. You know, so that's kind of where my head's at for all that. That was my thought process on the Joker film with Joaquin Phoenix. Like, I love the movie. As right, a movie, right. but I hated it as a Joker movie. Well, that's the thing, is that there's films that you look and you have to say, okay, to the general public, this is entertainment, that's fine. And then you're like, ah, but obsessive-compulsive nerd me wants mm-hmm. all the things to be exactly the way I saw it on the printed page. <laughs> so you just yeah. got to, you know, you, at some we point. We demand perfection. Right? <laughs> when do we get perfection? Yeah. <laughs> all right. For my second, for our second question, I'm going to kick over to my first co-host, uh, Sir Thomas. Go ahead and take it away, sir. Yep. So again, I'm sure you're spending a lot of time at home right now, staying safe. Um, mm-hmm. Do you play video games at all? Is there I do. any type so, of video games are you into? Not as much as I used to. Uh, once I got really busy with the writing stuff, it got harder to um, to to balance it out. But <clears throat> I have been lining up games. Um, my friend Ray Fox, who's a writer who's done a bunch of stuff over at DC and he's doing a bunch of work at Valiant right now. He, um, he was really into the Dark Souls games. And so last year he kind of got me hooked on those. And now I'm sort of eating up anything Souls adjacent, like, you know, anything in that sort of milieu of. Uh, uh, action RPG, get your ass kicked, and so um, eye gouging, eye gouging RPGs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just finished up um, Neo, which is was by uh, Team Ninja, mm-hmm. and then Neo Two just came out, and I got a delivery of it last week. And once I get enough done on my writing schedule, I'm going to plug that one in, and uh, just swear at the television and and fight, fight, fight. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, yeah you're, you're definitely going to have that same experience. Um, a lot of people are having issues with Neo too, at least in my circle of, of friends. Um, they, they've been complaining about a couple of bosses. So oh, really? Well, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you'll be able to jump into that. That's There's a weird feeling. Like some of my friends, they don't understand. They were like, why? You get so tense about it and, and you know, you're spending hours just trying to get past this one part. And I go, yeah, but there's something very satisfying about once you finally, the adrenaline rush of finally figuring it out or pulling it off. Um, it, it, it's a weird kind of challenge that you put before yourself. And then when you overcome it, even though it's just little digital bits flying on the screen, it's like any sport or anything else. You know, you you put a challenge before yourself and then you try and, and see what you can do with it. It's a, I mean, it's not a skill skill, but I guess it is in some ways. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, for me, um, Dark Souls 2 was my first Dark Souls game I played. My friend... Oh, cool. Peer pressured yeah, I, me into buying it. <laughs> I, I started with Bloodborne, and I and that is such a oh, fast game. And then I went back to Dark Souls Remastered, and I was like, oh, this is much slower. I was trying to run yeah. through it like Bloodborne, and I was getting my butt kicked. I go, okay, no, different, different <laughs> yeah. headspace. Gotta gotta change my uh, attitude on it. But I've really enjoyed them. So nice. Yeah, you gotta have that retro gamer mentality because it is all about patterns. You know, you gotta memorize all the moves oh, yeah, that's for time. everybody. Well, I think one of the things when you're playing something like Dark Souls, in most games where you're doing action, you're swinging the sword or whatever, and it it's not really super important where you swing, when you swing. It's sort of like I'll just spam this thing and it'll it'll beat it. <laughs> and this thing it'll is so where you're like, I got to be on the right side of them. I got to wait for the opening. Yep. I got to not get greedy. <laughs> and you know, there's a weird feeling. So the way someone described it to me is, they said, you know, the game. 
uh, is hard but fair. Like you'll get killed, and at first you'll be like, "That's impossible," and then when you actually realize what's going on, you go, "I've been dumb." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to spend yeah. a few minutes figuring this out, and you know, eating dirt a couple times until I uh, understand the pattern, and then it'll it'll make sense to me. Yeah, <laughs> that's a perfect description. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, you dropped the name Ray Fox before I move on. I just got to, because Thomas just discovered Valiant Comics. So, oh, nice. uh, yeah, like yes. You just read your first issue like two days ago or something like that? Uh, yeah, I read the the 2015 Bye. run of Rye, and then I'm picking up the the new one that just started. I'm on issue yeah. five right now, and Jesus oh, Christ, Ray's it's so great. good. We've been friends since college. He's uh, he's a really good dude. And he started yep. getting writing work in comics before I did, so I was sort of living vicariously through him for a little <laughs> while. Uh, and awesome. uh, then our careers have both gone on this really cool ride. So he's one of my closest friends. He was in my wedding party, and, yeah, he's just amazing. Um, so we'll call each other, and, and, you know, a lot of times I find – Sometimes professionals they they shoot their mouths off too much on on social media, way too public a platform. If they're frustrated about things, we all get frustrated. And you know, in a creative field where you're putting so much into it of yourself, mm. you know, when things don't go the way you want or or when it's stressful, it's understandable that you want to vent. But um, yeah. Ray's one of those people I can call up and we can just vent. We can just be like, oh, I'm frustrated. <laughs> Why isn't things going perfectly the way I planned? And and he uniquely understands, you know, the what the, how these companies go and publishing and yeah. superheroes and continuity and all this stuff. So it's nice to have someone that I can um, call in a pinch, and and he can call me, and we can sort of uh, fill a bucket full of venom and then just dump it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gotcha. But it, so the the thing he's working on, by the way, Thomas, uh, for Valiant is called the Final Witness. And he's writing it, and guess who's drawing it? Who? Jeremy Hahn. Oh, we're going to be talking to him soon. Yeah, it's, Thomas is a f- big fan. We all are big fans of this, but yeah. Uh, amazing. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm hooked on Red Mother. And yeah, all the times I've talked to him, he's always so so polite. It's it's amazing. Oh, yeah, he's wonderful. Last yeah. time I saw him must have been, we were at um, Paris Comic Con. And uh, he turned that whole the trip to Paris into like a mini vacation with the whole family. So he had like the whole clan out. They were all there and hanging out and, and touring around Europe for something like two or three weeks. It was cool. Yeah, so, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, they just really made the most of it. I was super impressed. Nice. And then my other co-host today, I'm going to kick it over to Josue. Hi, hello, it's me, it's Josue. And hello, hey, Jim. Man. Super nervous that you're here, but it's super awesome. Oh, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, no, so I host the Infinite Playlist uh, show that we have. It's more of a music-based one. Uh, if you have any recommendations, I would love to hear it. Um, so I am, that's probably the one area of pop culture that I'm not as up-to-date on is music, um, uh-huh. which is sad. Uh, it's just my brain is already full of all the nerd things. Oh, God. Um, so I don't have, like, any kind of current bands that I would recommend to you. Oh, I've been kind of, yeah, well, <laughs> I, what I, I do is I have these, you know, I'll literally just throw on streams of, of, you know, seventies, eighties, nineties music in the background mm. and have it playing when I cook or things like that. So my wife hates cooking and I, I love cooking. And so we'll just sort of fill the house with music while I'm making a huge mess in the kitchen and uh it's kind of nice and if i recognize a song we'll both like sort of sing at it and stuff we're just big dorks 
Nice. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's some nostalgia there, and every so often the track will come on, and I have no idea what it is, and she's like right into it, and I'm like, this is great. <laughs> I'm learning something new, you know, stuff like that. Um, I'm not a country music guy in the slightest. Yeah. But Kenny Rogers passed away this week. Oh, yeah, man, that's and a loss. My, like... parents, my parents love that guy and, and had a bunch of his albums. And so the music is all kind of in my head, regardless of whether or not I listen to it now. Mm-hmm. And so I threw on some of that a couple of days ago while I was cooking and realized I knew the words to way more of that stuff than I thought I did. I think it got baked into my DNA when I was a child. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So there, there's my, listen to some Kenny Rogers. How about that? If I make myself sound like an old man. No, no, by all means. Yeah. Yeah, we have a recurring theme on on that show where we have like a, yeah, a different theme every week. And this week's theme would be uh, album openers. So if, if you want to throw a, a a first song from an album that you really like, we'd love to add it on there. Um, but you don't, you don't do it right now. You can think about it as we record. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to look that up. I, I, you know, I'm going to have to look up literally what the first track on yeah. the is. Now. <laughs> we yeah. do like a week of research for these. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> you can never so go wrong got, with Johnny oh, Cash. The first track on the, on the Gambler album is The Gambler. So there you go. Nice. There you go. <laughs> It also has the door, it has the dorkiest album cover. It's amazing. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. Good. Well, then my last question, and uh, this one is going to lead us into what we're going to be talking about, anyways. Uh, on our show, we have issues. The one that I host every week, we ask everybody, "What are you reading?" Uh, so, what else are you reading? Books or you know other people's comics? Uh, this is a good time to get all that out there. Sure. So I read just in insane amount of comics right now for research Mm -hmm. so there's a certain um once you hit a certain level at marvel where you're dealing with a lot of continuity uh in the books Mm -hmm. and you have a monthly series you get on a mailing list where they send you pdfs of every book they're publishing about three weeks before it comes out so that means i'm getting somewhere between 50 and 70 pdfs a month Jeez. Of all the wow. Damn. <laughs> Which, you know, as a kid would be like, oh, that's the greatest thing ever. And it is amazing. But now <laughs> reading for research is different from reading for fun. Yeah. And so I try and I have to keep up on certain books because they're tying directly into what I'm doing, mm-hmm. summer event stuff and things like that. Then there's books I just I'm really enjoying. And then there's, you know, sort of all the other stuff that I categorize and I tend to binge read when I have time just so I can get a sense of the broader Marvel universe and what's going on. That Let's takes up a big, a big chunk of my my reading. Obviously, sorry, yeah. you were saying. I was gonna say, so you know, kind of where to tread or where to kind of touch on for right. between other titles and yours. Yeah, that's crazy. and it can also it can help. Push. It can also help generate ideas where you realize, oh, this thing happening could be parallel to mine, or we could reference this thing in my series oh, or, that's or whatever. That cool. You know, plus you're also gonna have reference for characters' new costumes or you know if their relationships are changing or, or just stuff like that. Yeah, uh, without the editors have to constantly, you know, check on it and correct it or whatever. Um, then on top of that, because I took over Conan the Barbarian, and that is like a bucket list dream project for me. Right. Uh, every time I say I'm the writer of Conan the Barbarian, I get this smile on my face that you can't see right now, but it is wonderful. Because that that's crazy. Um, yeah. So in turn, that has sent me down the rabbit hole of 
rereading a ton of Robert E. Howard, uh, all the books, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Conan uh, stories, plus the Roy Thomas, um, you know, original comic series at Marvel, and and kind of deconstructing them for my own benefit in terms of what I like about them and why they're so entertaining. Not because I want to copy them, but because I want to sort of, to the primordial essence of it, like what can I do to... to evoke some of those qualities while still putting myself into the stories and that's the tough balance you know i'm being hired to write this series and they want me to do it so it should be me in the the work but obviously i have to be cognizant of what has come before and um careful about evoking that correct feeling what does conan what does a conan story feel like and the weird balance is trying to make it feel classic but also unexpected and that's you know i think any long-running character if you're doing batman or spider-man or the avengers or or fantastic four or anything else Mm -hmm. you simultaneously need to keep in mind what has been done before both because you don't want to copy and retread the same material over and over again but also just to learn what those patterns are what those elements are that make it so special and then you have to inject something unique or exciting that you want to bring to the table without losing that essence of it. And it's a, it's a tough balancing act, but it's a, it's something I, I viscerally enjoy about the process. Yeah. And I, I actually wanted to mention it and it's a good time to bring it up. Um, I'm really enjoying Dark Agnes, which spun out of Serpent War. Yeah. And the Becky Cloonan's doing that one. It's really good. The Serpent War uh, miniseries was such a cool opportunity to be mm-hmm. able to take a bunch of these Robert E. Howard characters and bring them all together in one kind of epic story. And that was exactly that. How do I make them all feel like they work and they are who you expect them to be, plus introduce them to new readers, plus give them a task and a quest that feels full and rich and interesting and unexpected. And it was a really cool opportunity um and it went really well and it was part of one of the reasons i got offered conan the barbarian was because i had done three issues of savage sort of conan and i thought that would be my only chance to write the character solo i'd previously written conan with gail simone on a uh, the conan red sonia miniseries for dark horse and dynamite i remember that yeah and that was a blast just absolutely wonderful but that when i did that i thought that's my only chance to ever write conan ever then Marvel got the rights to Conan back, and Tom Brevoort brought our team. Um, Mark Wade and Al Ewing and I had done a weekly book called Avengers No Surrender, mm-hmm. and it went really well. And as soon as we finished it, they said, do you want to do another weekly? And I said, yes. Um, and then Tom gave us this nugget and said, it hasn't been announced yet, but Marvel's getting the rights to Conan the Barbarian back. Do you guys <laughs> want to involve him in the story? And I thought, well, that's insane. Yes, like you know, I do. <laughs> I'm intimidated but amazed. This is such a cool opportunity. I was like, how do we make this feel like a fantasy story and an Avengers story and not lose the essence of Conan and all this stuff? It was just a really mm-hmm. cool opportunity. And at the end of that story, not to spoil the big plot points, but Conan ends up <laughs> on Marvel Earth in the Savage Land, and that's where Savage Avengers picks up that Jerry Dugan is writing now. Uh, with Conan off on these adventures, you know, in the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. But there's still the main series, the Conan the Barbarian series and the Savage Sword of Conan series, both of which take place in what we call the Hyborian Age, which is, you know, that 
land of adventure and sword and sorcery and all that stuff. And um, so I, I wrote the three issues as, uh, as soon as we got done um, No Road Home, which was the, the Avenger story that had Conan in it. Mm. I pitched uh, the editor, Mark Besso, who's running the Conan books. Man, I would love to write a, on my own, like a solo story. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of poked at it and poked at it and, and sent him ideas. And then um, he really liked one of the concepts that I came up with. And I had already had, you know, this nice introduction in terms of knowing the character. And so I did a three-part story for Savage Sword called Conan the Gambler, which weird now we were talking about Kenny Rogers the Gambler, and now we've got Conan <laughs> the Gambler. Um, but yeah, Conan the Gambler, um, in the original novels, when they were serialized, not serialized, when they were released in these collections, they would have titles, you know, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Destroyer, uh, Conan the Usurper, and all these titles. And I said, oh, Conan the Gambler, like, I want him to be in a gambling hall and get himself in over his head in this uh, insane gambling hall where if you lose, you lose your life kind of thing. And um, it went really well. We had an absolute blast. Uh, Pat Zerker drew this the hell out of this three-part story and I I felt like I put my stamp on the character and I said what I wanted to say and I felt really good about it like there if I never get to write Conan again that's what I think is a perfect Conan story that's what I think are all the the elements that make Conan so awesome and I was satisfied but in turn it, it became like an audition like that became people go man he really gets it and what I didn't know was happening beneath the surface was um, Marvel was signing the rights to a bunch of the other Robert E. Howard characters like Solomon Kane and Dark Agnes, mm-hmm. um, you know, and Cull the Conqueror and all these other characters. And they were also, um, Jason Aaron was going to be wrapping up his run on, on Barbarian. And both these things were happening, you know, without my knowledge. And what I had done with those, both um, the Savage Sword stuff and with No Road Home is I had proved that I could do the book. And so yeah. they offered me the monthly title uh, soon after they offered me to do this crossover <laughs> book, which ended up becoming Serpent War. And so that was, it's still, you know, um, kind of mind boggling to me. And when I think about it too much, <laughs> um, <laughs> and now I'm, I'm planning out, you know, Conan stories. I've got my first year all kind of built out. Two issues are released now. Um, I just finished writing issue six and I've started scripting issue seven of my run. Um, they restarted the numbering with when Marvel got the rights back, but mm-hmm. they've been doing this good thing I like where they have legacy numbering, which is the original numbering is sort of right underneath. I love that. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. So my first issue of Conan is issue number thirteen, but in the legacy numbering it's two eighty eight. Mm-hmm. So if I get to do thirteen issues, my thirteenth issue will be three hundred. Um, <laughs> and love they still to honor that, that too. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of, I mean, I want to write the book till they take it out of my cold, dead fingers. But <laughs> my, my immediate goal is making sure I get to get to 300. Uh, that would be very cool. I would love to do that anniversary issue. I would love to, to, yeah, it's just something really exciting and fun. And when I was a kid, those issues were so cool. They were so yeah. amazing. To have to, and they would get me to try a series that I had never read before. If I just saw a big fat number on the front, Mm-hmm. And a big anniversary issue and a wicked cover, I would be like, I, that looks neat. I want to try that. And so <laughs> the idea, I've never done one of those. And so that's like, that's a, that's a milestone that I would, I would love to have. Nice. Okay. From what I, 
from what I've seen in Serpent War, I don't think you're in any, any danger of losing yeah, the, right. the, yeah, the rights to Conan the Barbarian. Or anything, but yeah. It's just no, it knowing that that's in the future is a really cool thing to... Yeah, exactly. Towards. And no, to yeah, realize you... that when you know you've got a longer run planned, mm -hmm. you can build out some really cool plot lines. You can, you can foreshadow stuff and then six, seven, eight issues later, you can pay it off in fun ways, or mm -hmm. you can surprise people with bringing stuff back in unexpected, you know, uh, um, plot lines and, and stuff like that. So, um, the people who who run Conan properties, if you will, they're really nice, and I've met them a couple times in person, and uh, they've been very supportive of what I'm doing. And so, yeah, it just feels good to know that we're all pushing in the same direction, and we're all very passionate about the character in the world and, and the potential there. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's your dream. It's like you said, it's, it is what it is. Like, yeah, um, it's one of those books that, that growing up had a huge influence on me. Mm -hmm. And now to think that I get to, you know, make a small mark on it as well. Um, yeah. it's really special and, and I never want to take that for granted. Yeah. Well, looking back on your CV, uh, as we were talking about, like there's a, obviously a lot of fantasy influence throughout oh, yeah. everything you've yeah. done so uh i want to ask before we before we get into the, your actual work what ha what happened first did you were you a fantasy kid were you a comic kid was it kind of simultaneous it was all kind of i mean it's hard we're talking like eight years old so yeah. my older brother he's four years older than me so when i was eight he was 12 which doesn't sound like a big gap but when mm. you're eight four years is half your life so <laughs> it's a lot um we got a, we got along but he was clearly that much older and more mature than i was or you know when a 12 immature but right. um he was into comic books and he was into uh fantasy and science fiction novels and i never really keyed in on the sci-fi very much but mm -hmm. the fantasy stuff I really loved. And then that got amped up even more when we started playing Dungeons and Dragons. I was going to ask, so, I bet it was D&D, &D, right? <laughs> yeah, brother, so I thought the first time he played was with our older cousins, but apparently he went to some, he was in scouts. So he went to some scout camp and some <laughs> kid there had D&D. &D. But the first time I remember it was when our cousins showed us. And then Joe ended up, my brother got the book uh got the the basic set or whatever the red box as they mm. called it and um started playing and on that front cover i think it says like 10 and up and i was eight and so he's like oh you can't play this it's too old you know, <laughs> and we had a big fight about it my mom was like if you're gonna play you have to play with your brother and you know whatever else <laughs> and it was a huge watershed thing for me playing D, &D uh unlocked a lot of my creativity it gave me confidence mm -hmm. Um, it made me want to tell stories and make characters and places and, and get viscerally involved in the storytelling process. And um, after my brother finished high school, we played all for years. We played D&D together. Then we started playing other tabletop role-playing games. He went off to university, and I was running games steadily for my friends. And mm -hmm. being the dungeon master, the game master, was just my role in our kind of friend circle we played video games and we read comic books but we always the constant was role-playing games we were playing these tabletop games and so my comic book reading would go through different phases like i was heavily into superheroes when i was like eight to around 15 16 years old mm -hmm. and then 
like as the Vertigo comics took off, I got into Vertigo stuff and then manga and mm-hmm. then web comics and then back to superheroes. So it was like all these different eras <laughs> of comics and indie books I was kind of riding through and enjoying. But because it was such different material, they feel like different fandoms, you know what I mean? But yeah. the concept was always role-playing games, particularly D&D. Yeah. And so um, that fantasy core really sat heavy. And that also meant that any character that swung a sword or wielded magic <laughs> or engaged the supernatural, they were something I tended to gravitate to. And so some of my favorite characters are, you know, Doctor Strange and the Black Knight and Thor and uh. obviously the Barbarian <laughs> and you know, Blade and, and Werewolf by Night and, and Moon yep. Knight. Like, these are the kinds of cool characters that I, I really enjoyed. And so some of my favorite X-Men are, you know, characters like Magic and, 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 and stuff like that. Like, the ones who've got a magical bent or a sword in their hands, those are the ones that I tend to gravitate to most of the time. One of my favorite Avengers is the Scarlet Witch. You're just like, all these themes mm-hmm. keep back around and so whenever i get the chance now at marvel if they ever sometimes they'll ask me if i'm interested in the project and most of the time you say yes because it's cool to do marvel stuff um but if i have my choice they're like well who what characters could be involved in this they already know i'm gonna throw some magic character in the mix or (laughs) like i'm doing the um empire avengers miniseries that ties into the summer event and they said well you know here are the avengers that are doing other things who else can we use? And I was like, Scarlet Witch, Doctor Voodoo, Black Knight, like I'm just gonna watch it, the man thing, and all this stuff. And I, I kept waiting for them to say no, or like I, I, I stacked my deck so that I would get a couple of them, and they said, "Sounds good." And I was like, "I get them all." <laughs> these, these aliens are not ready for the magic. <laughs> so uh, I would totally just do a book called Magic Avengers. That'd be great. You know? Oh my god! <laughs> but, but seriously, like um, that's the kind of stuff that that is really joyous, where you're able to write something that is, you know, that you can put yourself into, and that that you're able to um, hopefully give readers the same kind of exciting feelings that you had, you know, when mm-hmm. you discovered these characters and their their adventures growing up, you know. Yeah. So that leads me to the first book I want to talk about. Uh, one of your pre-Marvel books, Skull Kickers. Yes. <laughs> um, so I read this book and I immediately told my friends, I was like, I, I sent them screenshots because I was reading it digitally. And I was I was literally like, see this? This happens in every D&D campaign. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's, it's the scene where they're at the door and the bald guy is looking for the key and the dwarf just loses his patient and just blows through the door. Yes. I was like, this is exactly what happens in every game. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, yeah, people ask me, they're like, are Skull Kickers, like, is that your D&D campaign? And it's not, but it's like <laughs> all the ingredients that make D&D so much fun, right? Yep. So it is, even though I'm the writer and I know where the story's going, I wanted it to have this irreverent feel that the heroes are not going to follow a heroic story or do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. They're going to be way more sarcastic, way more uh, selfish, way more awful than <laughs> they should be, and yet still be victorious through their own guile or, or violence or whatever may have you. And so it, to me, is like... You know, there's there's a terminology that people use for D and D games where they call it uh, murder hobos, where people yep. are just 
running around, <laughs> killing monsters, getting treasure, and getting more powerful with no moral core whatsoever. And there's something ridiculous and fun about that if that's the way you want to play. And so the Skull Kickers are that. They're, they're this style of gaming that I felt like we could bring to the comic page, this mm-hmm. irreverent sword and sorcery action comedy. And and I, I didn't realize how how much I would enjoy tapping back into that and and pouring it out there, you know, and people responding to it. And it was so funny because people would say, do you play D&D? Because when I read Skull Kickers, it feels like D&D. And I'm like, you betcha. You know, like that's really at the core of this thing is that feeling. Um, you know, high fantasy, the, the terms vary, but high mm-hmm. fantasy is like big epic magic and heroes of destiny and we're going to save the world kind of stuff. And to me, pulp fantasy, uh, Conan the Barbarian and D&D is, is what I call low fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's like morally troubled people who are selfish and afraid or, or doing the best they can in a world full of chaos that they can't possibly understand. And they're not the best people for the job, but they're the ones we've got. And it's going to be fun and entertaining to watch what they do. You know, Conan, although he becomes a king by his own hand, the majority of his adventures, he's a, a thief and a, and a troublemaker and a, you know, pirate and, and, and just barely getting by or stealing and, and, you know, whoring his way across the Hyborian age. And that's really ex- fun. Like it's fun and visceral and um, escapism in its own way. And so I wanted to bring those qualities into Skull Kickers. Skull Kickers is a mix of like, uh, Faffer and the Grey Mouser, which is this other pulp fantasy uh, novel uh, mm-hmm. series, uh, Conan the Barbarian, and D&D, with that weird twist of there's a character in Skull Kickers who has a gun. And at first you think, oh, this must be just like fantasy that has muskets and guns and stuff. But what you find out in the within a few issues, not to spoil too much, he yeah. is the only guy with a gun. And that was simultaneously because I had this bigger story plan that we slowly unfold as you read. But yeah. also because it reminded me of playing role-playing games with people who don't know the game milieu. And so the minute the game starts, they'd be like, I want to be a dragon. You're like, you can't be a dragon. <laughs> like, I want to be one. And then you're like, oh, fine, fine. You can be a dragon. So to me, if Skull Kickers was a bunch of people playing, someone's like, I want a gun. And they're like, they don't have guns. And Well, I'm going to have a magic gun. And you're like, fine. If it'll shut you up and we'll start playing the game, you get to have a gun. And then you figure out why later. You know what I mean? Like, so it, it's all... Um, inspired by the ridiculousness of Dungeons and Dragons and other role-playing games, even if it's not a one-to-one comparison every time. You know? Yeah, that just reminds me of uh, one of our frequent co-hosts and my best friend Liz. Um, basically, every game of D and D she's ever played, she's played with me, and uh, she's unusual amongst girls because she loves orcs. That's her favorite, and that's awesome. Yeah, so she wanted to play a full orc, and I was like. No, because <laughs> like, this, this was in 3.5 when it was this whole math thing. And I was like, I don't want to deal with that. And no. the, she, I'm like, you can be a half orc. She's like, I don't want to be a half orc. I want to be a full orc. I'm like, how about we say you're a three quarters orc and we just use the half orc stats? And she's like, okay, fine. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> like, so, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Like the, yeah. they just jump in and they don't get it. But that, that's one of the things that makes 
new players great to D anD D? Oh, totally. One it's because they don't know what they can't they do. <laughs> I love running games for brand new players, and one of the reasons why is, first of all, they always surprise me because when you play <laughs> these games for years on end, you build up patterns of behavior, right? And it's something called meta gaming, where you have knowledge that your character would not, and you can't help yep. sometimes, but play up that knowledge and that you know if you see a big pit full of green slime you're like well i know what green slime is it's not going to hurt us that bad and i don't want to waste hours trying to figure out how to get around it we'll just wade through the thing you know what i mean it'll take what 1d6 damage per round and we'll just get over it and 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 so on right but what i love is when you play with someone who has no preconceived notions of it and you tell them here's a pit full of steaming green liquid they're like that's we're gonna die we gotta get out of here (laughs) (laughs) because that's how someone innocent who had no prior knowledge would react to that right or they would enter their first combat and they're trying to negotiate their way out of a situation with a bunch (laughs) of kobolds and orcs and i'm like this is great because most players are like roll initiative let's kill these guys and these people are like, wait, we don't want to have to kill you. What if we, you know, figure this out? And I'm like, I love it. I love it. I want to have those experiences. Role-playing games are not video games. Like, video games are amazing. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, there's only so many things you can do. And people will find ways to break the games or make their own fun in, in you know, um, sandbox kind of games or do ridiculous stuff and get creative. But mm-hmm. there's only so many dialogue options and there's only so many items you can pick up and so on. In a tabletop game, my imagination fuels it, your imagination fuels it, and you throw cool ideas into the mix. And then improv-wise, I'm going to respond to it. And it's bottomless, and I love that quality to it, you know? Yeah, no, it's, I love, I love DMing. It's so much fun, except I do have a troublesome group when I play. They tend to make as much trouble for me as they can, but that's part that of the fun, you know. <laughs> my job is to make. kill them. Every <laughs> group is there to make their dungeon master sweat. It's the way it should be. Well, I want to transition that straight into, I, you obviously did a bunch of D&D comics. I'm a big mm-hmm. Forgotten Realms fan. Um, yeah, yeah. I grew up on Baldur's Gate, especially, you know. Yeah, so the video games, the stuff. Um, yeah, getting it's again, it's that weird thing. I did Skull Kickers as like a a way to release these ideas that I had about why fantasy and gaming is fun, mm-hmm. and then it ended up becoming a bit of an audition where I did um, Pathfinder, which is another role playing game. I got approached by Dynamite and the people that actually published Pathfinder about doing mm-hmm. the comic series. I did that for 18, 19 issues, actually. I did like 18 regular issues and like an, a double-sized special. Um, hmm. And then after that, I, I started doing D&D because they were launching the fifth edition of Dungeons & Dragons in 2014. And I got approached about writing uh, the series. Uh, it was actually less of them approaching me and me kind of <laughs> grabbing it by the throat because um, uh, IDW is the the publisher who's doing the D&D comics. Mm-hmm. I did a run of uh, Samurai Jack comics um, before they did that f- uh, fifth season of the, the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I did 20 issues of Samurai Jack and the guy who runs IDW, he contacted me and he told me he really enjoyed the Samurai, ba- the Samurai Jack book. Um, were there any other properties that that idw had that i'd be interested in writing and i said dungeons and dragons because at that time we weren't publishing a DD comic but i knew they had the rights to it because they had all the hasbro stuff and hasbro mm-hmm. owned 
Passage of the Coast. So they had Transformers and My Little Pony and G.I. Joe and all that stuff. And I said, I know you guys have the D&D license. I want to do D&D. <laughs> and, I, and I knew that they were developing a new edition of Dungeons & Dragons. So my sales pitch to them was, this is the right time to try D&D comics again. There's a new edition. It'll be more visible than usual. Let's do it. And we uh -huh. set up a conference call. And, and you know, by hook or by crook, uh, I started writing Dungeons and Dragons for, for real. And that was um, 2014. So it's been, you know, six years of me doing D&D comics. And then that got me in touch with the Wizards people directly. And we got along amazing because we're all the same kind of nerd. <laughs> and um, so now I've done a bunch of other writing for them as well. Uh, my wife and I and another friend of ours, we wrote this series of books for Dungeons and Dragons called The Young Adventurer's Guides, mm -hmm. which introduced kids to the precepts of D&D. Essentially a series that would have hooked me when I was eight. Um, <laughs> now for this generation of players, um, I did consulting on one of their adventure big source books called Descent into Avernus. Mm -hmm. I've written a bunch of other um, story material and, and done consulting for, for the D&D brand. Um, it's surreal, honestly. At, at times I just feel like a big old kid uh, and I get to, get to dig into that stuff. You know, guys like... Um, I always want to say so. R. A. Salvatore, the guy who you know writes a the lot best. of books. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> he's a friend of mine now, which is utterly bonkers. Because oh I my god, <laughs> his name is Robert, so his name is Bob. So when I talk about it's like Bob Salvatore, you know. So, and I'm talking about Bob this and Bob that. You know, Tracy Hickman, the guy who created mm -hmm. Dragonlance and Ravenloft. He and his wife Laura, um, mm -hmm. they're good friends of mine, and. Uh, we share a booth together at Gen Con and like stuff like that. It, it, it's um, eight-year-old me is still freaking out. Like it doesn't feel like it's possible, you know. Ed Greenwood, the guy who created the Forgotten Realms, uh. last time we were at the convention together, I was gonna go say hi to him, and he got to me first. Like he came to my table and was like, "Jim, so good to see you." And I'm just thinking, Ed Greenwood is hanging out at my table, and there's a line forming behind him because they know who he is. How did we get here? Like, what, what, did, what issue am I holding on to so tightly that this could happen? It's, um, it's very cool, you know. Yeah, you literally just listed four of my biggest influences. Like, awesome. <laughs> like and I'm just like, oh, I'm so jealous. Like, no, they're so... Great, and they're great people. This is the thing: the D and D community as a whole, everyone on the mm -hmm. development team, Jamie Crawford and Chris Perkins and and Adam Lee and and you know Kate Welsh, everyone over there at the office. Um, I could, I could name, they're like, they feel like family now. Like they're all such good people. And when we get together and we hang out and we talk, we're all so passionate about this stuff, about storytelling and about the community. And um, that's a special thing. That's not something that comes along very often. And, and to have the chance to be able to do that mm -hmm. the, consistently is something that um, I, it's really precious to me, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um and talking about the D&D, &D, of course, I also wanted to mention you did the Rick and Morty D&D &D story. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> with Pat Rock, yeah. Um, that was the most insane project. We had so much fun <laughs> on it. But, so um, a group of, of uh, the people at Oni Press who had the license to do Rick and Morty mm -hmm. and then IDW who has the rights to D&D, &D, uh, they were a group of their editors, I think were up for dinner and someone was saying we should do crazy crossovers. And someone, I think at the table <laughs> just brainstormed and said, Rick and Morty, Dungeons and Dragons. And everyone laughed. That's 
weird. <laughs> and then it stuck in their heads like, that would actually be kind of cool. And so one of the editors came by my table. This was at Emerald City Comic Con, you know, uh, two years ago, maybe three years ago. Oh my God, Tom is fine. Two years ago. <laughs> um, and they were like, are you interested in being involved with this? And I said, sure, but it'll never happen because there's no <laughs> way that Hasbro and Adult Swim will come to terms on two of their, you know, crown jewel properties to mess with each other. There's no way. Seriously. Uh, it, it did take a long time for them to negotiate. It took, I think, like eight or nine months <clears throat> to negotiate the contracts on it. And by that time, they had contacted Pat Rothfuss, you know, New York Times bestselling author, amazing <laughs> nerd celebrity. And so literally a year later, Pat and I are at Seattle at Emerald City Comic Con, and we go for dinner to discuss the project. That's how long it took to get the thing rolling. Um, and that was the first time I ever met him. And all of a sudden, we were attached at the hip doing this series together. And he had never co-written anything. And he had never done kind of commercial writing on that level. And so it was just like this mad torrent of ideas and and waterfall of creativity and we're just um we they, they brought on board this amazing artist named troy little who man that guy is the greatest he would take our most insane concepts and <laughs> run with it and make it look effortless and so if you enjoyed rick and morty D, troy little is the mvp of that series like leonardo ito our colorist was phenomenal and everyone oh. who worked on the book was great but like troy oh poor troy the stuff we were asking him to do and the amount of reference material I sent that poor bastard, um, <laughs> it, it, it was unholy amount of work. And he just, he gleefully, gleefully uh, delivered on all of it. And so as soon as we wrapped up the miniseries, um, they asked if we wanted to do a sequel. Pat's incredibly busy with his charity and also with a bunch of television production stuff he's doing based on some of his books. And so mm -hmm. he bowed out. And I said, here's the concept. I think I'm going to do this. And he's like, with his blessing, go get him, you know. So we mm -hmm. did a sequel called Painscape, and it was just a scream. We had so much fun doing it. <laughs> um, and I told them, I said, anytime, I'm up for more. And the, it became so popular, they made a game product based on Rick and Morty D&D. I was actually going to say, I bought that for my friend Liz. I mentioned before, I bought her for her birthday last year. And she's already played through it and loves it. Yeah, and that, so I got to be on the writing team for that, for the game. Oh, that's awesome. And then Troy got to do a bunch of new artwork for it. So, but, but Kate Welsh and the rest of the development team, they did the real heavy lifting. Because game design is different from comic book storytelling. Like, they're different <laughs> skill sets. And creating an open pool of encounters for people to go through is very different from creating a plot with characters. You know what I mean? Yeah, you and know so, where you know where a comic is going. Exactly. And so they didn't go I anywhere. Chaotic <laughs> stuff out into the ether, like, hey, we should do this, we should do this. And Kate is desperately trying to pull all these threads <laughs> together. And the fact that it functions in any way, shape, or form is because of her and the rest of the development team. Ari Levich and everyone, Adam Lee, and everyone who contributed to that book was just an absolute champion of, um, and, it, it, you know, it's done so well, and it's been such a fun thing to be a part of. Yeah, that's, I mean, it sounds great, you know, like, and I, I wasn't able to sit in on the games that she DM'd playing in the Rick and Morty uh, setting, but I really kind of want to now. But um, I want to actually talk about another one of your books, and <laughs> at first glance, I read Wayward, and I just want to straight up say I loved Wayward. Like, there was something really great about that book. It's so and 
Yeah, I'm was reading it too. Really yeah, from a lot of my other stuff too, which um, I think is important. Like, yeah, I love the action stuff, and it is an action-packed series, but it's really like a a teen drama, and with mm-hmm. the supernatural, you know, big theme pushing behind all of it. You know, when we were first uh, pitching it and selling it, we were talking about it like it was Buffy in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that series was a really amazing thing to do because I got to work with a good friend of mine, Stephen Cummings. He lives in Japan, so he lives in Yokohama, which mm-hmm. is adjacent to Tokyo. And um, I love Japan. I've traveled there a bunch. I worked at the Udon studio for eight years. Oh, wow. As I started as wow. a colorist, and then I moved over to doing illustration and then art direction and then project management. And when I got to this project manager level, the studio was doing a lot of artwork for Capcom and Konami and these other Japanese companies. They were starting to publish their own books and do translated manga and art books. And so my boss, Eric, would travel to Japan usually twice a year to obtain new licenses and do business meetings. And on one of those trips, he was like, do you want to come with? We went to Japan, an amazing time. I got hooked. I love traveling to Japan. I mm-hmm. love the food. I love the people. I love the cities. Um, and so I've already got this, like, I, Japan's amazing. Anime and manga is amazing. This stuff's really <laughs> great. And then Steven, who lives there, uh, he, we had worked together. He was one of the Udon artists, and he had done a lot of different commercial artwork that I had managed on. After Skull Kickers came out, he reached out to me and said, hey, man, I um, I would love to do a creator-owned book again someday. You know, the commercial stuff's fun, but you burn out on it after a while. Mm-hmm. I want to make something original. And he had done this cool pinup when the studio, Udon Studio, in 2010, we did an art book called Vent. And it was an anniversary book, 10 years of the Udon Studio. And it was essentially a bunch of dream projects pinups and concepts that we would probably never get around to to doing and his was this kind of japanese ghost story with this girl standing on the steps and all these creepy cats around her and she's holding these like spiked bats and i thought it was so awesome and i was like what's the story about and he goes i have no idea i just would love to tell like supernatural stories in tokyo and i thought man i hope you get to do that someday (laughs) and then like three years later he had contacted me and said, I would love to do a creator own book. And I said, did you ever do anything with that ghost story? And he goes, no. And I was like, oh. And I had an older idea that I had been developing about sort of the generational divide between, you know, fantasy of old and fantasy in the modern world. And I originally assumed it was going to be the kind of story we would tell in Europe you know, Germanic or, or, mm-hmm. or British kind of fantasy. You're typical. The traditional magic, yeah. Unicorns and hydras and all that stuff. And it just seems so on the nose. And I was like, eh, I don't know. I, I, I have a theme and I have an idea, but it doesn't, it's not quite gelling, right? And then I realized, wait, Stephen wants to tell a supernatural story in Japan. Why don't I do generational divide in Japan? Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of where the the germ of the idea started to develop. And we started to build out this ensemble cast of our kind of, whatever you want to call it, new mutants, our little, our powered characters who were going to be these teenagers (laughs) who were all all messed up and discovering (laughs) their powers and figuring out that they were actually plugged into this bigger supernatural conspiracy. Um, And it gave me an excuse to do tons of research on Japan. And it gave me (laughs) excuses to travel to Japan and it gave me, you know, it's attached me to so many friends now in the industry 
um, it's really, really special. And so we pitched that book to over to image and they, uh, accepted it. And that was my, you know, second image title. And we launched that in late 2014. And it was a real game changer for me because I think people had me pegged as the fantasy guy, understandably. Mm-hmm. Um, and this really showed that I could do drama. I could do team books, like a larger group ensemble. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could do that, that dramatic kind of turn. And that helped uh, secure me a spot over at Marvel to do Thunderbolts. And so, um, you know, Wayward has been, and then eventually Steven and I, when Wayward wrapped up, Steven and I relaunched Champions together. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it, um, it really helped uh, solidify my career as a writer in comics. So and Wayward, we did a 30-issue run, six trade paperbacks, and uh, really, really proud of it. Yeah, I, I really like it, and um, the one thing, because like you said, it's kind of unlike anything you've ever done, but you know, as I read it, I'm like, you know what, it's four to six heroes with varying powers, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, this, it's kind of, I mean, it's like D20 Modern, basically, and I'm like, but I'm like, D20 Modern, it's also got yeah. a, it is a little bit of that superhero mutant kind of yeah. thing going on. It, it's just because we're able to frame it in Japan, we were able to draw on a very different mythos. Yeah. We were able to draw on very different themes. And the character personalities also, there's certain cultural elements of, of the Japanese people that I think we were able to exemplify. And Stephen was really invaluable for that kind of stuff where he was able to talk to me about day-to-day life and, and the kinds of priorities that, that people have and stuff like that so we could make it feel grounded. I was also obsessed with trying to ground it in Tokyo as a place. And so almost every single scene in the series takes place in real places in Japan. So we would <laughs> literally send Google Earth links to each other and I would scroll <laughs> around neighborhoods. And once we had cast a neighborhood, we'd say, this is where they're going to fight. Steven would g- jump on the train and shoot extra f- photographic <sighs> reference to make sure that that was the place. And so... In uh, one of our collections, the the deluxe collection, we have a map of Tokyo with here's on a dot. That street is where that part of the story took place, and that part. Some of it's very recognizable, like when they're in Harajuku, they're in Harajuku. Mm-hmm. You know, when they're at the Tokyo Tower, they're at the Tokyo Tower. But even smaller scenes, they all have a place where they're they're you know viscerally happening in in Japan, and that I'm really proud of. And the vast majority of readers don't care. And the vast majority of, of but, but when someone notices it, when we've literally had fans of ours take photos of themselves in places matching the panel angle, yeah, because they want to show us that they went to the place that we told our story, that is the coolest feeling. That's know? incredible, yeah. Yeah, that's one awesome. Of the things we did. So I traveled to Japan a bunch, and there was one, there was a long stretch of around nine months where I didn't get the chance to travel there. And we had done a bunch of stories and we did um, a big fight scene in this temple park. And then I traveled to Japan and I went there and I had never been there. I'd only seen it through the photographs and Google Earth, you know, rotating the camera around or whatever. And to be standing in that spot and I felt vaguely guilty because we destroyed the place in the comic. <laughs> and I was like, man, I'm a bad, this is a beautiful park. I'm a terrible person. Why did I do this? You know, like, it, was so, it was so weird. Yeah, it's funny because I've actually been to Japan myself, and it's oh. yeah, it's amazing. But I had a similar thing with um, 
with uh, a couple a couple of the spots of the book, but uh, the game Persona Five. I was telling the group about this. I was playing it, and it's really, really very accurate with Japan in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And I remember going into the train station and looking at the map on the wall with all the lines on it, and just being like, "Is this the actual map of the train stations?" And I yeah, pulled it I up, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> "Like, I know this. I've seen this before." <laughs> so that, that was just really cool. And like, yeah, I, I, it's just. It, I, I think uh, it, it was in the intro um, for the book, the first volume, where mm-hmm. uh, it was about how we mystify Japan. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, and, 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 and yes, and it, it's got a certain otherness, but it's yeah, Zach, a place. Zach Davison, he wrote most of the back matter essays for the series. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a professional translator, award-winning uh, translator and researcher, and monster scholar. Is that a cool title or what? That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) He he was such an amazing resource. And when we brought him on board originally, a mutual friend of ours, Brandon Seffert, um, introduced us. And he was like, as soon as the book got announced, he he said, you got to meet this guy, Zach Davis, and he is right in your wheelhouse. And I didn't realize I had been bookmarking all sorts of research material. Zach had written an inordinate amount of the articles that I had already been bookmarking online for my research. And then I got to know him and he actually was really uh, a little cold to us at first because a lot of times he'll get approached by companies or people who want to do that mysticism kind of Japan. They want to do the, the, the corny cliches and the stereotypes and they want him to legitimize it or they want him to translate kanji or, you know, make sure the tattoos of the characters say something cool, you know, like stuff like that. (laughs) And, And, he has no interest in that stuff. He, you know, he's lived in he lived in Japan for years, and he and he has a deep love of the country and the people and everything there. And he he wants it to be treated respectfully, you know. But in Japan, they use their own myth the way we use our myth, you know, yeah. dragons and unicorns, all that kind of stuff. They they do the same thing over there. There is flexibility, but that doesn't mean you don't understand the source, right? And yeah. so he was amazing for me to bounce ideas off of and to be to help us give that feeling that it was really grounded in the place between he and Steven. I was super focused on plot and characters and emotion. And then they really helped me to ground it, to anchor it in, you know, a feeling of, of Japan and Tokyo in particular. And, yeah. and when people tell us that we got it right, when they tell us the details, you know, that, that are in there, some of the visual details that Steven did purely on his own, some of them, you know, little stuff that, that we bounced off each other to make work. Um, it feels good because you go to a lot of extra effort. And of all the books I've worked on, Wayward was probably the most involved and the most difficult because of that research component and, and the limitation we gave ourselves of making it real places, you know? Yeah. I, and I mean, the last thing about Wayward I really wanted to bring up is the characters are awesome. Like, yeah. there's just such, like, you get them right away. You know, it doesn't take much to really hook you into these characters. Um, I think Steven's artwork is such a huge part of that, where he mm-hmm. gave them a great visual identity, and they just feel so grounded right from the get-go. It made it easy to write dialogue for them. It made it easy to 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 put them into situations, for sure. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Like Rory, the red hair immediately pops, you know, yeah. and yeah. and immediately I'm like red hair, and then we find out, you know, she's half Irish, and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, like this is really interesting. Like, and each character immediately pops for me, and they all look Thank distinct, you. 
but you know they still fit the setting which I, yeah it's awesome <laughs> so. yeah coming up with powers was tough because we didn't just want to do okay this character's strong <laughs> and this character flies and this character shoots energy like we wanted to to make it feel very different from your superhero kind of team book mm-hmm. but at the same time still have elements of that that you could key into and so playing with some of those powers and playing with some of those um even the way the characters treat their powers i think was was a way to make it feel a little different yeah so as you mentioned it was a team book which got you warmed up for doing thunderbolts and champions um so transitioning your marvel work which again has to be another like dream for you as a kid you know Uh, you're reading x-men and stuff and now you're doing marvel um yeah i was obsessed with the official handbook of the marvel universe when i mm -hmm. was a kid which is like an you know the encyclopedia marvel if you will yeah um it it felt as a kid i had this naive idea that it was all organized (laughs) because (laughs) there's entries for everything so it must be all organized like i thought there you know stan lee put his stamp literally on every page or something um (laughs) Only to learn many years later that, you know, it's all the individual efforts and creativity of all these writers and artists, sometimes spontaneously and sometimes meticulously putting stuff down in the stories, stuff that they're inspired by or excited about or very much of its time. But but that enthusiasm, when it works, it works so well. And when I started doing Marvel work, at first I was really nervous about creating things. I, I think I wanted to perfect this idea of I will follow all the rules. You tell me what a character has <laughs> done and I will make sure I write them correctly. You know, like I yeah. wanted the stamp check mark or whatever. Um, it wasn't until a few months in that I started to, to realize that the way this was going to get even more exciting is if I started to make stuff or started to change things that these characters need to grow and evolve. That's mm-hmm. why we love them. That's why we can, you know, keep reading them. And yeah. that's where, once that kind of unlocked in my head, it was like, oh, this this gig is even cooler. Um, <laughs> let's let's really go to town and and build little chunks of the Marvel universe, build new bricks for the House of Ideas, you know. And I really like that you started with Thunderbolts because I loved Thunderbolts. The first run was so great, right yeah. after Onslaught, you know. And I, I love that so many of the characters come back for your run. Yeah, um, yeah, it was it was joyous, like. The the actual um, I think the second story arc is called oh can't remember my own stories <laughs> no going back there we go yeah. and the reason why is because it was this idea of nostalgia fueled through you know you want it to be like it was but it can never be like it was but it'll be something different it'll be something equally or entertaining and enjoyable but just because you get all the same people back together doesn't mean they can just fall back into old patterns. Some of them try to, but mm-hmm. they're not able to because life has moved on. And that was something that I felt really strongly about, you know. Yeah. And then so obviously with Thunderbolts, I mean, we got Winter Soldier leading it up. And mm-hmm. you, you got all the traditional Thunderbolts. Um, obviously, Bucky's probably going to be in a couple other books at the time, you know, making guest starring roles. But Thunderbolts don't have a lot of crossover to other books. But then you went over to Champions. and Well, I did, in between that, I did Uncanny Avengers. Oh, that's right. You did a run on Uncanny Avengers, too. That's right. Uncanny Avengers. And while I was launching Champions, we did the Avengers Weekly. That's where we did No Surrender. Gotcha. So So you kind of transition into these high-traffic characters that... Right. 
you have to coordinate and like mm-hmm. specifically looking at champions Kamala Khan and Miles Morales jump out at me immediately like oh that's got to be a lot of working things out it was so, bonkers like the yeah. uh, when I took over champions and we added Ironheart mm-hmm. uh, to the book and we also added uh, Nadia um, Van Dyne the Wasp mm-hmm. and so we had I think out of seven characters, I think five of them had solo books because you had, you had Amadeus Cho was the Hulk at that point. Oh yeah. Yeah. You had Ironheart, you have Kamala, you have Miles. Um, Viv Vision didn't have a book. Yeah. Is that the only one? (laughs) Oh my God. Hold on. Let me pull down the champions book so I can have a look here. I'm looking at the cover right now. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. I think Nova's book had just finished when mm-hmm. I took over, and so you're saying out of seven characters, five of them had solo books that we were trying to coordinate with. It yeah. was hard. It was really hard. Um, I really enjoyed doing the book, but it was like a constant barrage of of emails and trying to play catch up. Where I'd be finding out that they were making a major change to a character in the solo book, and I wanted to reflect that in the team book. But we also had our own story arcs that we were trying to pay off. And I wanted the book to feel like you could just read it on its own and it all made sense. And then we got inserted into um, Infinity Countdown. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, how can we tell a story that we use as Infinity Countdown ingredients? But also feels like it works within the champions. But also, you know, <laughs> and that was, that was well, just this, this like gordian knot of of problem solving and but it's a good creative kind of problem solving where you're being given challenges and you're finding new ways to solve them with the ingredients that you've got and so it created all sorts of weird story stuff that i don't think i ever would have come up with on my own but that's Mm -hmm. where you you have an editor and you have good collaborators um you know and and it all kind of works even though it just seems like it's absolute chaos at times yeah, see, that's one of the things I um, I really like about Champions, and me and Hosway have talked about this a lot, is every publishing company has their strengths. Like, we all know that uh, DC has those legacy heroes that, you know, the Trinity we always talk about. You know, they're never going anywhere. Right. And DC's always been really good with animation. You know, Marvel, to me, innovates really well. And you just look at all these characters, and as you mentioned, this isn't just a group book of a bunch of characters that like hope this works they each have their own books <laughs> like right, right. the next generation is r- really matters to marvel and that's one thing i love and champions is just a collection of them and then yeah, you take- it was the real it was a real incredible responsibility to have all those characters at once you know mm-hmm. in one title and to realize that you were when you have characters that have been around for 40 50 years obviously it's an amazing honor to be able to work on them but mm-hmm. the chances of you making a huge permanent change to them is much more difficult. You know, there mm-hmm. are hundreds and hundreds of Spider-Man stories. Um, you, your Spider-Man story is just going to be one of many. But for someone like Miles, you know, there's only a couple of years, only a few years worth of stories. Or someone like um, Riri Williams, is, at that time, she'd only been around for just over a couple. year, I think. Yeah. yeah. Maybe two. The number yeah. of stories, you know less than 50 and so it's like cool we can do some really cool stuff the vision even less yeah uh, just, and so it was the kind of thing where we could now make choices with these characters and it could stick 
you know, like mm-hmm. Amadeus Cho's new uh, paradigm where he kind of mixes the Hulk self and his rage with his intellectual self. That mm-hmm. happened in the, the the Totally Awesome Hulk book, but then we gave him the new costume in Champions, and he's had it ever since. You know, uh, Ironheart's new armor, that premiered in my book because we had Thanos destroy her old set of armor, you know, in my series. Like, uh, those were the kinds of things that we were trying to push forward and make champions feel like it was appointment reading. You had to be keeping track of it because it was cool and exciting and unexpected. Nice. Yeah, I really like it. And on the, the last run of champions, um, I just want to say the fact that you guys use dust is amazing. I think um, just I love I'm an X-Men nerd. So, uh, like, even the most obscure X-Men, like, I always joke with the guys that I can name 200 X-Men, which I can, but, <laughs> but um, I loved the Academy X run with with Ooh. those kids, and that was, like, one of my favorite runs of comics for, in a long time, and just seeing Dust pop up, I'm like, yes, like, I love that, like, uh, just a great character, and... Okay, uh, like, getting to, to bring characters back that hadn't gotten the spotlight in a while, mm-hmm. we made a new teen hero called Snowguard who joined mm-hmm. the team. And that was very much like a selfish, hey, I want to make a new Canadian superhero because I'm Canadian and screw it. Uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I had not indulged myself in a lot of ways. Like I had done some small things, but up till that point I had been very, okay, I'm not just going to make that just because I'm Canadian. And then all of a sudden I was like, when am I going to get this chance again? When am I going to get this chance again? Let me make a new team hero. Um, you know, I don't feel like the indigenous population in, in Canada has, has gotten ever gotten a good spotlight in the superhero space at marvel and i was like this is this could be really amazing i think we can do something really different with this yeah it went well we that the week that we we totally lucked out the week that we made that snow guard character um was a snow a slow news week in in canada so i was (laughs) i got coverage in all the major newspapers in canada i was on canadian national television i did canadian national radio three times that week just to say, well, we lucked out in the sense that yeah, I think it was a week before. No, it was the week that that Infinity War was coming out, and I was finishing up writing um, Avengers, and so the way that the Canadian press framed it was, Jim Zub writes the Avengers, and now he made a new Canadian superhero, and the Avengers are the biggest <laughs> movie in the world. Avengers like, writer Jim Zub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, technically true but you're yep. stretching it a bit but to the general public i might as well have been canadian stan lee that week it was totally wild <laughs> it was great like it was a lot of fun you know and i'm explaining to people about how making superheroes works at marvel and and it was just wild it was a wild wild thing but um <laughs> but all those heroes really getting them to the way they interacted and in the the storylines we were able to throw at them that was a ton of fun, man. I um, I really love those characters. I'm excited to see what comes next with them. I know Eve's got some really cool plans with the, um, you know, with, with the new uh, event that they're doing. Oh, yeah. And all that stuff. And she's so relaunching the book. It's going to be really cool. And um, those characters really deserve a lot of care. And I think that, that she's going to do a great job. And I know that the whole team is excited about where things are going. So, Yeah. And then uh, that kind of leads me to a book that a lot of people uh, might not realize is such an ensemble, because it literally has the main character's name right in the front, but Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, book is such a weird book. I love it. 
it's so weird and I, I i was just telling them there's characters in here that i'm just every time i turn a page and i'm like <gasps> like so like like i'm i'm a gigantic iron fist fan and seeing yeah, fat yeah. cobra like yeah, oh yeah, fat is the best. um that is another one of those weird books that should not exist it's so surreal uh, <laughs> I, uh <laughs> what happened was um will moss the editor he and i have been talking for years about working on a project together and uh jason aaron had introduced this concept of the agents of wakanda because the shield organization collapses in the main marvel universe in the mm -hmm. comic continuity and black panther is the chairman of the avengers and he needs that 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 support unit he needs something like shield out there in the world and so he makes the agents of wakanda and i have no idea jason's never told me why he pulled this psychotic ensemble of characters <laughs> you know kazar and and okoye and uh yeah. the wasp and like all these weird gorilla man, gorilla <laughs> man. Oh, okay that's cool american ego and all this stuff and it's like all right i'm just gonna so will says to me here's the lineup of characters you can add more to the mix later on are you interested in this and i said maybe like i give me a weekend <laughs> to think about it and i and i when when I had pitched Thunderbolts originally, I said I want this to be like Jack Kirby Mission Impossible, and Tom <laughs> Breedwell really liked that. And almost as soon as we started developing Thunderbolts, the larger plan for um, for Secret Empire was was really coming together. And so the the needs of Secret Empire and the big plot line with the Cosmic Cube stuff mm -hmm. necessitated Kobic and all the other things that I'm really proud of that we put into the Thunderbolts book. But right. it changed the direction of that book. As much as they were kind of black ops and mission-based, the bigger plot line had to take priority. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden, it felt like I had an, I, I pitched it to Will. I said, hey, this should be like Mission Impossible meets Jack Kirby. You know, yeah. We should do like, psychotic, weird missions. It would be really cool if we could do two-issue stories. And we always have a cliffhanger in the middle. And that way, it's always rapid fire, always momentum, always new stuff going on. I like that, yeah. And, and he loved it. He really keyed into my concept, and he let me run wild with the damn thing. And so I just threw out the most insane mission ideas, you know, Man Wolf on the Moon, and <laughs> let's, you know, have Fin Fang Foom, and let's do this, and let's do that. And and Will has literally not said no yet, and I'm just like, when are they going to stop me? This is nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and I get to dig into old, obscure bits of continuity, mm -hmm. Um uh, Adam Warren, the guy who does um, Empowered and a bunch of other books, he did a series, I want to think of 2005, I think, he did a, a series, a miniseries of Marvel called Live Wires. And it was this nanotech, like cyber operative thing. And it, they've only ever appeared, I think, there and in one other maybe issue of like Deadpool or something. And Adam's a good friend of mine and we get along really well. And when I started really doing a bunch of Marvel stuff, we were talking one night and he goes, if you ever have a chance, you should bring back the live wires. And I was like, that'd be cool. And all of a sudden I looked and I went, I can bring back the live wires and they can't stop me. <laughs> and so I did a two part story with the live wires and I wrote Deadpool in there and like all sorts of insane crap just because I thought it would make for a fun story and, and I could find a way to justify it and, you know, back, backfill in this weird continuity because it makes me happy um and when readers say that it makes them happy too then you know that's you realize why you do it right so yeah and then i mean obviously that's an ongoing series and then we got 
we got Conan. We've already talked a lot about Conan, obviously. Yeah, yeah, fuck, I, Conan chatter at the start here. <laughs> but I mean, it's it it's it's just bizarre to me that Conan's in the Marvel universe now. But it's also amazing at the same time. Well, like you said, he's, just, in, he's in Savage Avengers, so it's the the main Conan book, like Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. Is still its own sequestered thing doing its own thing. Yeah. And that book will never have crossovers, and that book will never, you're not going to see Deadpool showing up there or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. But Savage Avengers is that book where they get to just sort of go insane. Or the one, um, Saladin's writing the uh, Battle for the Serpent Crown. That's mm-hmm. where he's like going to Vegas and all that insane stuff. That's, you know, I think it's fun to have. Uh, you know, Conan is such a great character, and <laughs> the way he bounces off other characters is really fun. I just, I, in my mind, I always want to make sure we have that spot carved out for him in the in the Hyborian Age. Yeah. And then everything else is the fun experiment, you know? One of those experiments, and this isn't a book that you worked on, but I got to get your opinion on it. The 2099 Conan, what did you think of that book? Because <laughs> I love exactly it. what I was thinking about right now. Again, <laughs> I told Jerry, I read the issue, and again, remember, I'm getting these books in advance, so I read the PDF, I immediately messaged Jerry, and I said, look, I would not have done any of that, and that's why it's great, because I'm too much of a purist, I would have gotten way too bent out of shape, I would not have had the nuts to do that, but you went, you know, you went beast mode on it, and it's fun, and that's what matters, like, um, you know, every so often I find myself, I get, I get a little hitched up on continuity or I'm reading up, I'm doing so much research on these characters cause I want to, I want to do it right. And, and every so often that can be a crutch where you realize yeah. you need to take more risks. You need to, you know, go outside the lines more. And, um, every so often I have to kick myself and go, don't get caught up on, you know, <laughs> the way it was, do it your way respectfully, you know? And I love that Jerry just like kicked down the house on that one and went. And <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay, I'm digging it. Like I, you know, the the, the once I read the first couple of pages and I realized how insane it was going to get, I was like, <laughs> I just, I'm just in. Like I'm, I'll, I'll get on the roller coaster with you. Let's do this. We actually and reviewed Mark Antonio, oh. the guy who drew that is now he's my artist on uh, Conan the Barbarian. The ongoing, nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. perfect. The art was great in that yeah, issue. Wonderful. He's really good. Um, we actually we, I was like, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say we actually reviewed all the twenty ninety nine books uh, on our show, yeah. and that one I distinctly remember. He picks up the Nova helmet, and I'm like, "This is incredible." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think if you get, you know, comics did all sorts of insane stuff. Mm-hmm. Stan Lee did insane stuff, and Roy Thomas, and all those guys, they do crazy stuff in the in the sixties, seventies, eighties. And I think people forget that. I think they yeah. forget some of the really weird storylines, like really, really weird ones. And <laughs> yeah. people get bent out of shape and they're like, you can't do that to so-and-so. You're like, give me a break. These books, like, they're weird. And that's what makes them so fun. And we can go deeper and weirder and stranger and bigger. And, and you know, yeah. the, only, the only thing, the only limit we've got is kind of our imagination on it. So. Yeah. Were you going to add something, Thomas? Um, no, I was just going to say the entire 29 series was the best way to describe it was it was just heavy on the shock factor. Oh, yeah. Like, even the Fantastic Four issue. Oh, my gosh. Don't get me my started mind. on that comic. <laughs> that <laughs> when you have those kind of self-contained events where you know you're not going to break, you're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you're not going to ruin yeah. the, the, the main Fantastic Four book, 
well, why not? Like, just try something. Just yeah, like, go for broke. You know, make make it make it memorable. <laughs> so obviously, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna want to keep picking up Conan and Black Panther and Agents of Wakanda. But you are working on something coming up for the big mm-hmm. crossover that we are all very heavily anticipating. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got you got two parts of Empire. You got the Avengers book and the Invasion of Wakanda book. Yes, yeah. So Invasion of Wakanda replaces uh, Agents of Wakanda for the for the three months during Empire. Oh. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's essentially it is Agents of Wakanda with a with a twist with the plot of Empire. I can't oh, okay. spoil too much. Yeah. <laughs> but um, what worked out really well was I was already going to be doing Invasion of Wakanda. That was sort of like set because it was going to be Agents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were talking about other plot lines and the way it tied in because the Agents of Wakanda are part of the Avengers. We were talking about how those things tie together, how the Avengers fit together with the big plot. And Tom just said, rather than working with another writer to make this work, why don't you just do both? And I was like, yes, sir. That sounds great. Um, and that's where I got to pitch a bunch of crazy characters who uh, and involve them in the Empire event and in sort of a side plot that ends up becoming more important to the core of the thing. And so it was, uh, it's been a, uh, an absolute blast. Everyone working on the books. Carlos Magna, who um, he did the Invaders series with Chip Zdarsky, mm-hmm. uh, he is drawing the hell out of the Avengers book. Um, <laughs> the closest comparison I can give you is like George Perez, pages of Ooh. 20 figures on a page just popping and jungle scenery. And I feel bad for him sometimes. Like I, <laughs> I, I, you know, writing pages. And when I write a sentence that says, this huge army smashes into this army. You know, that takes me five minutes. And then he's going to spend many <laughs> hours doing that do page. <laughs> yeah. um, and boy, is he just, he's, I think he's spilling his life on every page. It's just like bonkers. Um, he's doing a phenomenal job. And then Espen Grundesjern is the colorist and he is taking it to a whole other level. So that book just looks absolutely stunning. And I already told Tom, I said, you know, we're only doing these three issues, but I kind of want to hold on to Carlos for something else. Like I want to do another project with him if we can immediately because he's so damn good. Um, it's been a real joy to, to work on. And, and writing Avengers the first time, I, again, it's like Conan, one of those things where you go, I wonder if this is the only chance I'll ever get to write these characters. And yeah. so you pour your all into it. And then if it goes well, it just becomes easier in a sense for people to see you in that role and wanting you to do it again, which is very... Um, very heartwarming you know yeah definitely i mean i'm excited for empire i think it's gonna be great um you have no idea you have no (laughs) idea the the surprises that they have baked into there and what's funny too is that of course i know all the big reveals and the way that they're hiding those in the promotional artwork and they're hiding them in the solicitation and they're hiding them in the previews they're just just keeping out of sight of some of the secrets that are coming. And I love it because I thought when we first started talking about it, I'm like, well, you'll never be able to keep this a secret. You'll never be able to keep this from getting spoiled. You'll never, (laughs) readers are going to figure this out. And they've just danced so well. It's amazing. (laughs) And so I think people are going to really, what I love about it is um, I think every month, as the event rolls out, there's going to be more and more surprises that are people are going to be like, I got to get caught up on this thing because what the hell have I been missing? <laughs> nice. 
so I want to go ahead and kick it over to my co-host to see if they have any questions at this point. Uh, Thomas, anything for you? Um, no, I just want to say you can definitely tell, um, you know, how you always write, like it's going to be your last time writing a character. Yeah. <laughs> because um, I'll go to Serpent War. Um, at Around the second issue, I was like, is this an ongoing? Because you're like, you're writing such a big universe Thanks. for all these characters. And then you just sealed it up like in four issues, which is to me is amazing because honestly, to like broaden my world and then close it all off and like give me an ending, it was it was just right. a lot. For and then years. hopefully also give enough potential if we ever want to do more that there's something there, you know? Exactly. Um, yeah. When, but, when I was pitching the Serpent War idea, I said to them, I want to make a new big bad in the in the Marvel universe. This idea of the worm, you know, this this ancient evil. Um, and that fueled a lot of our ideas early on in the development process. And, and yeah, just trying to make that feel as epic and cool as I remember. You know, imagine the first time you, you discover Thanos or that kind of level of villain, like something huge. Mm. That's cool. Like, I, w- I want to make one of those. <laughs> you know, like, and so um, that was kind of fueled a lot of our ideas was how can we make this character, th- th- this villain and this quest feel full and rich and and full of potential and um that you have to introduce these characters in a way that people are going to want to read more stories with them because for a lot of people they're not robert e howard readers this is your first time interacting with solomon kane or dark agnes mm-hmm. how can we make yeah. them memorable and engaging you know and it's a cool challenge to be trusted with that kind of stuff and and hopefully you know deliver on it that's the thing and so um as much as possible when i have those moments of doubt or fear or like oh crap what am i doing you know i try and tap back into some of that um that excitement and enthusiasm that i had for the books growing up and that i have for the stories and just try and be like what would i want to see what would it engage me as a reader because if i please myself then then readers like me hopefully will see the same kind of qualities in it that I do, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and my um my fiance fell in love with Serpent War and she's in love with Dark Agnes right now. Um <laughs> it was interesting because to me, um, comic books have been kind of like a relaxed read. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yours really got my brain going. <laughs> and then cool. she took it a step further because she is a big snob for details mm-hmm. and she turned it into a puzzle. She was reading issue three and going back to issues two and one and she's like, Oh, okay, now this makes more sense. And I'm like, <laughs> she was piecing it all together, like piece by piece. And oh, she awesome. read the first issue of Dark Agnes, she loves it. And Becky's um, doing a great job on that book. Yeah. Know? You know, yeah, it's funny because people are like, oh, she's like Red Sonia. And I go, look, man, she's the original Red Sonia. So (laughs) Red Sonia does not exist in the original Robert E. Howard novels. Um, There are two different characters that form the basis of who um, Red Sonia is. There's a character called Sonia who is more like a kind of a, a, um, she's actually wields guns and runs around a totally different era than Conan. And, and then there's Dark Agnes, who is this character, you know, who's just this this French warrior who uh, kills her, I, when I say fiancé, it's a forced wedding, 
you know, and runs away and all this sort of stuff. And she's fiercely independent and will not back down. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the two kind of characters that become the ingredients of what we think of as Red Sonia. And so getting to, to work with the original, with Dark Agnes, and to be able to introduce her to a whole new reading audience is, um, is such a cool opportunity. And I'm so glad that that they're continuing with the, the miniseries. And I want to see that character you know, continue for some time. Yeah, and I like I like uh, Dark Agnes a lot because I think she's more approachable. Because Red Sonia was blessed, you know what I mean? Like she's preternaturally good, whereas Agnes fought for what she's got. You know, she's worked to be who she is, and I really like that. So yeah, yeah, Agnes, her her fierceness is like this this intensity that that drives her. You know what I mean? That if she yeah. backs down for even an instant, she's going to lose everything she's fought for. And I yep. like there's a a desperation, but in the right kind of way. Like it is, it is um, powerful in that way. And I loved that in Serpent War, she never really gets along with Conan. Like the two of them happen to be going in the same direction and needing to go on the same quest. There's no, there's no love lost there. That's for sure. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that they're, they're not rivals, but they're equally not friends. They just happen to be pulled into this same circumstance. Yep. That, you know, not every team up has to be, um, we're going to be allies by the end of this, you know? Yeah. And then, Josue, did you have any questions you wanted to ask? Uh, yeah, no, not so much a question. just wanted to add more, going back to uh, Wayward. I instantly became a fan reading it. So thank oh, you so thank much you. For, for this book. And I do plan on finishing it. <laughs> um, what I really loved about it is, like, what you said about it, how it's like such, such a ground grounded story, how you wanted to make it that way. Um, what I love about it as, I, as I'm starting to read it is that I love that it respects the medium while honoring the culture of like being over there where like Thank right you. now we have like, we have like certain mangas like uh, my hero and one punch man doing like kind of basically doing the vice versa. Like they honor right. their medium while respecting our culture with superheroes, you know? Right. Right. No, um, it was, a, it that meant a lot to me to be able to, make it feel like it was grounded in the place and that we were paying attention. And and the way I explain to someone is I'm not Japanese, so I'm not telling a quintessential Japanese story, but that doesn't mean I can't tell a story set in Japan about right. about myth and about, you know, youth versus their their parents or youth versus history or, or whatever. And um, I think that's true of anything. When, when we made the Snow Guard character for Champions and she's, you know, an indigenous uh, uh, character here in Canada. Got to do my homework. Got to do the research. Got to get people to bounce that stuff off of, so that I'm not going into this unaware. You know, yeah. Um, and and that's a huge part of our process. In the same way that I would research a character's continuity in a superhero setting, I need to you know get the backstory and and the material that's going to make um, you know a difference if I'm dealing with someone who's not like myself. And that that it's part of the writing process, and I wish more people would um, not shy away from that. You know. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I just I, I'm a huge fan that there, we have a, a comic that more or less, in a way, could have been like a manga in any other form, but we have right. it in, in, in our medium that we just love so much. And it's kind of like mm-hmm. the same thing I like talking about monstrous that way, where like this thing was like a rejected manga, like, but thank God we have it in comic book form because these pages, these panels are just so fucking awesome. Yeah, 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 and that's what's so great about it is it, it doesn't have to be – it's not a manga, but it clearly has some influences. Or, you know, it's set in Japan, but that doesn't mean it has to be an anime in terms of tropes or what may right. have you. 
it can be its own thing. It can have influences of, but still do its own thing as well. You know, why wow, you're you're still honoring the culture, which is super great, and why it's, it feels so genuine, why it's so easy to really like the story. Well, thank you. That means a lot. Yeah, and, and we. I'll, actually- I'll, 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 oh, 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 I want to add, a, I'll definitely be on the hunt for one of the variants for number one. I was doing my digging, and there's one of the variants is uh, Roar, is, yeah, Anya in the back rocking a, a Lion Cat shirt. And, yeah. and then more importantly, Roar rocking a Brimper shirt, which is a, a sex criminal's reference. <laughs> that we, won't, we won't get into it, but it's yeah, so it awesome. When, when Wayward was coming out, Image was on this rocking this high with all sorts of new, amazing creator owned books coming out. And uh, Saga was already huge, and Sex Criminals had come out and was really big. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved the, the pop culture aspect of it. And so we were doing these retailer variants, these special covers. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to this retailer group. I think they're called the Phantom Variants they were doing for a while. And they said they wanted something that was very self-aware. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, how do we do this? And then I had the idea with the T-shirts, because I would go to conventions. I would see that Lion Cat shirt everywhere. Everywhere. And so I thought, okay, Lion Cat, and she's, quote, our cat girl or whatever. So that yes. was, <laughs> on top the, they had just released the Brimper shirt, and I was like, oh, it's so topical. Okay, we'll just we'll just lean into it and and make it a joke. And people love that image, man. She doesn't so have hair, which is so funny. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, like, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention about, about it, now that you brought it back up, it's a really good book for, like, one of our co-hosts reads reads a lot of manga but doesn't read comics, really. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading this, I was like, you need to read this because this would be a good transition book for you to start reading comics. <laughs> like, Yeah, we heard that a lot, actually. We heard, you know, a bunch of people would say, oh, I read manga. Oh, and I'm reading this, too. Or, you know, mm-hmm. they, they would come by my table at a convention and they would literally say, oh, you got to get this. And the guy's like, oh, I don't read American comics, and they said, flip through it, and they go, oh, no, I'll get this. Okay, cool. <laughs> that, that issue cover with Ayane and the cats. Man, yeah. that cover, oh, God, the number of books I've sold just because people see it on my banner at a convention, and people come by and go, look at the kitties. Oh, my God, they're creepy. That's amazing. And then I pitch them the book, and then they buy it, and then the next day they come back and they buy volume two, three, four, five, six. You know, so. <laughs> uh, so cats are powerful. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is, is both Stephen and I are allergic to cats. Oh, shit. <laughs> so I actually can't be in the room with most cats. I will get like really, my sinuses will stuff up almost instantly. My eyes go red, and Stephen's almost as bad as I am. And so we we joke around because I'd be writing these stories where there'd be dozens of cats running around, and he's pulling up all this visual reference to make sure the cats look correct or whatever. And he's like, "We both kind of hate cats." I'm like, "I don't hate them. They're just trying to kill me." letters from readers and they would send us photos of their cats because they assumed that i love cats and i'm like i don't dislike them they're just trying to kill me you know so. all right so obviously we're looking at everything as a whole and you you know you played D as a kid and you write D. you read conan as a kid and now you're writing conan you read marvel comics as a kid and now, now you're writing marvel is there anything left? Um, <laughs> the mountain has been climbed. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's particular characters that I would love to write um, at Marvel or, or you know, in general. Um, but I, I can't say that I'm displeased or anything. 
like it, but I'm thankful that I haven't, you know, done. I, I had the ability to contribute to so many things that have meant so much to me as a kid. Yeah, um, it's constantly like a nostalgia bomb. Um, and so, what's nice about it is, is, I don't feel like I am missing for anything. Like, if I don't get the chance to write a particular character, I don't feel like some yawning abyss in my creative career. <laughs> and that's cool because it means that. The future is very bright in terms of bringing my best to things I never would have imagined that I would work on or um, new original creator on stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, and both of those are, are looking really bright for the, for the months and years ahead. So I've already got, like, I am full for 2020. <laughs> We're already starting to talk about 2021 potential projects and, um, you know, uh, admittedly, my plans to travel more this year uh, have been severely curbed, but so I can't really complain. Um, that said, though, you know, it, for me now, it's about trying not to lose that momentum or trying not to to take for granted any of the stuff that that is happening around me, you know, yeah. and tell stories that are meaningful to me and and um, keep that. Yeah, keep that momentum at every stage of it. Um, because when when I bring that excitement, not just stuff that I used to love, although a lot of the things I have done definitely key into that nostalgia, but if I can find the excitement for new things, like the champions obviously didn't exist. You know, those characters didn't exist when I was growing up. Mm. But if I can find that excitement in them, hopefully still bring some of those qualities about the classic Marvel books that I love, to new characters then then you know we're doing it right so. yeah and if i could just throw a thing out there just in case marvel is listening give him an alpha flight book i oh, would love to read that <laughs> did, you read the, did you read the alpha flight one shot the true north no not yet oh, oh what? So we, did a, we did a marvel uh alpha flight 80th anniversary like the the marvel 80th anniversary celebration we mm-hmm. did a series of one shots so we did a, a one called alpha flight true north so it's me and um, Jed McKay and Ed Brisson, we all wrote new Alpha Flight stories. They're all like awesome. I think, 10 pages each. Um, so Max Dunbar, the guy who's doing the Dungeons and Dragons series with me now, and we did a, a creator-owned book at Comicsology called Stone Star. Mm. We did a, a Snow Guard and Talisman story. Not Snow Guard, Snowbird. Snowbird, Snowbird yeah. <laughs> and story. And uh, it was a blast. It was so much fun to work on. Just saying, but I, I love do, Alpha Flight, and yeah, man, I would do Alpha Flight in a heartbeat. So, uh, <laughs> just and, throwing that out um, in the universe. <laughs> and I'll throw this out: if you play the Dark Souls games and you like them, and if for some reason From Software is listening, <laughs> I would love to see Rick and Morty versus Dark Souls. Not <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> the most insane thing. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, Rick and Morty versus. Um, versus Bloodborne. Yeah, we'll just go continue. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. with all that stuff. That'd be good fun. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jim. We really appreciate you taking this time. Uh, we talked to you for quite a bit of time, so I appreciate yeah, you taking so much time out. You know, we, so we covered a broad amount of projects there, man. <laughs> Holy crap. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your enthusiasm for my work. Um, yeah. It uh, means a lot. Like, this, this whole industry functions because readers are amazing and they share work with other people and they tell people that they're excited about stuff. So please keep reading and please keep sharing. 
Definitely, and uh, right. we hope to meet you at a con soon. Uh, once yeah. you know we're able to meet at cons, <laughs> that'd be great. Once um, apocalypse has passed, yes. I know, man. <laughs> we're just, we're stressing right now about a couple of our cons, but you know it's for the best. We're doing the right thing, you know. So, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us today on the Geek Network, guys. As always, uh, check us out on the podcast. We're on pretty much every podcast channel at this point under Geek Network, and uh, check out our website, geek-network.com. And again, thank you for joining us, and uh, have a great day.